Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. I'm one of the producers on this show. And we love to talk about grifters on Darts and Letters. And the pandemic has brought out all the worst kinds of profiteers from the woodwork. From sketchy PPE contracts to the disgraced former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, there's been profiteering that worsened all the various crises at every level. And John Nichols wrote a book about it. It's called Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. So we interviewed John about that book. The pandemic does feel kind of rear view now. In reality, it's not. Infection levels are still really high, but it feels that way. And we recorded this in January when, despite being in lockdown here in Ontario, it still felt like things were ending already. Who knows how long it's going to feel like things are ending with this pandemic, I guess. This week's theme for Darts and Letters is Left Opinion Makers, and we're doing a different theme each week until we relaunch the show on September 18th. If you don't want to miss that relaunch, go subscribe to our show in your podcast app. It costs nothing, and it's the easiest way to make sure we get to keep making Darts and Letters. All right, here's the show. Sided Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. The pandemic certainly isn't over. Here in Ontario, I basically can't really go anywhere. Yet, despite this lockdown, in another sense, the pandemic feels like it is over. At least, it feels like it's been psychically and politically metabolized. It was at one point this period of rupture where it felt like anything could happen, but that's past. Now, it just feels like one of a long list of social problems. It's like car crashes, the common cold, or homelessness. We're told it's basically the cost of doing business in capitalism, and the best we can do is manage it. But today I want us to go back to when this was all new, before it was normalized, when there were starkly different political choices on offer and people made the choices they made. Maybe if we know about those critical junctures, we can make it a live issue once again. Maybe we can reimagine our healthcare system. Maybe we can hold people accountable. Maybe we can prepare for the next pandemic. To do all that, we have to retrace our steps though. And John Nichols is just the guy to help us do that. He is national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and he is author of Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. The book started as John's sort of personal diary. I realized very early on that this was going to come at us fast and hard, and it wasn't going to stop. And as a result, 
we were all but assured of losing track of what was going on and, and frankly, very vulnerable to being lied to about a lot of stuff and forgetting a lot of stuff. So I decided pretty early on that I was going to take notes. I kind of kept track of what was going on with an idea toward writing a book. And the basic concept that I, that I wanted to explore was a question of whether we actually learn anything from past experience. And you, you, I, your uh, slight giggle there suggests the problem <laughs> because the fact of the matter is we should have known exactly where it was headed. We should have known the problems and we should have been much better at dealing with it. Naomi Klein wrote The Shock Doctrine, right? You know, we've been taught about disaster capitalism. We've been taught- A while ago too. And we've been talking about the book for a long time. So it's no surprise. No, it shouldn't be. And also, I mean, we had the economic meltdown of 2007, 2008, which taught us all sorts of stuff about how not just politicians, but also corporate types take advantage of the moment, right? So with all of that understanding, it should have been in a society that learns from its experiences, should have been a circumstance where we did better. In fact, it became clear very early on that we were going to do worse. And some of it was down to Donald Trump. But Trump is just a symptom of the problem. The fact of the matter is that we have a a system in the United States that pretty much doomed us to an awful response to the pandemic. And that response was so awful that uh, the Lancet study suggested that as many as 40% of those who died in the first year didn't have to die. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people getting sick and, and a substantial number dying unnecessarily. That ought to be a big deal in any country at any time. And so it was with that understanding that I set out to write the book. So, you know, I think using the the concept of the shock doctrine is really quite apt. And I'm curious, like knowing of knowing of the idea, knowing of the term and having an eye towards how disaster capitalism might manifest How are you thinking about that at the moment? Well, you know, Naomi Klein herself did speak about some of this. She wrote an essay relatively early on in which she said, you know, look, watch out because there's certain things that could happen if we don't uh, do things right. But uh, I've covered politics for too long and I've seen these circumstances uh, in too many ways. It just seemed to me that uh, we were going to see the shock doctrine writ large. Everything we saw in 2000. 2009-2010, uh, we were going to see in a much more profound way. And when I say profound, it's because there would be more money involved. And by the way, there is, right? And at the same time, the potential for a redistribution of the wealth upwards was even more astronomical because we were going to have a lot of needs. We were mm. going to have a supply chain challenge that was going to be altered because you know, the physical task of getting things was going to be different. So those who were digital and delivery oriented, i.e. an Amazon or something like that, they were just going to make unimaginable amounts of money. And then the final component is that uh, because of these first two realities, politics was going to be politics and it was going to go in some ugly directions and that that could be exploited by capital. We were going to end up in a situation where a lot of people died that didn't need to die. Your book starts um, poignantly, I think, with a factory worker, assembly line worker named Mike Jackson. Could you tell me a little bit about him and why you decided to start there? Mike Jackson goes right to what we were just talking about. Uh, he uh, was a, he's a guy in his 40s. He has a large family. 
African-American guy working in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or in, in his case, just outside Milwaukee in an industrial suburb. He worked for a company called Briggs & Stratton, and his work was considered essential, right? Now, in fact, he was making products for like, you know, blowing leaves off your lawn and things like that, I, I believe. I, I won't describe it too precisely, but essentially that's what he was doing. But he had to come into work. And very early on, Mike Jackson said, as did a number of his other workers, you know, we're not well protected here. Well, lo and behold, in very short order, COVID hit the plant. Mike Jackson got sick and he uh, went home, but, you know, he had a large family to support and there was a lot of pressure and he went back into work and he was never diagnosed uh, in the early stage. And he ultimately collapsed in his workplace. Uh, He was taken out, he got into a hospital, but he did die. And why his story stands out for me, it's a lot of reasons. I mean, it's a classic story of a lot of the challenges. But beyond that, it was a wake-up call. Milwaukee's an industrial town. And it was clear that there were going to be others like him. A group of activists made a big deal about the fact that he died. And they made him an icon in a way. They said, you know, here's a hardworking person from our community who didn't need to die. And we should remember his story. And we should remember his circumstance. And we should grow and learn from that. And they were in the streets. They protested. They made a big deal about it. His name kind of floated into the uh, broader political discourse a little bit as the year went on, because we had a big battle about whether companies, corporations could be held to account for deaths in their workplaces. And uh, some members of his family stepped up and said, we think we should be able to sue over things like this, or at least we think we should be able to demand accountability, where we had politicians like Mitch McConnell, or, you know, was in the Senate, saying, no, 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 we have to have liability shields for corporations. That liability shield part, I mean, accountability is a huge theme in the book, but the kind of legal chicanery that's going on there, it comes up in many different chapters. People are sneaking in liability protections or they're delaying certain legislative moves because the liability shield is a kind of necessary feature for them and their corporate benefactors. Can you tell me a little bit about where else that surfaces? You're right. It's writ large across the book (laughs) because the liability shield is the place where sort of disaster capitalism, again, something we've talked about a a bit in this conversation, where it it erects its protective shields. It's the moat, if you will. It allows corporations to do whatever they want, uh, knowing that they're not going to run into particular challenges. And that's because in the United States, as in most countries around the world, uh, we don't have a lot of accountability for uh, corporations that that let workers die and that uh, let workers get sick or that uh, work them in unreasonable ways. Now, unions can sometimes play a real role in protecting, but there's a lot of bad situations that occur. And when they occur after the fact, uh, if you have the ability to sue, if you have the ability to go into court and say, hey, here's the evidence that this corporation did the wrong thing, that they didn't protect these people, that they didn't protect consumers, you can, you know, ideally force them to pay. Now, that doesn't begin to satisfy the needs or the the reality of the circumstance because you've got people who died or people who've gotten very sick. But what it does do, the power of liability, of of the ability to sue, is that you can let corporations know that if they do not take care of their workers, if they do not take care of consumers, they can be held to account. Right? They could end up in trouble. It could cost them a lot of money. They care about things like that. So what Mitch McConnell, who was the main power broker in the United States Senate at that point, did was hold up 
relief, hold up aid for people who were suffering until he could get a liability shield from the late spring, early summer of 2020 until winter, like months passing at a point when we were having thousands of thousands of people die every week, rising to tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of infections. Our government, our federal government wasn't acting. It wasn't taking the basic steps. Now, the House of Representatives had passed a bipartisan bill, right? Democrats and Republicans had agreed they were going to act. And Mitch McConnell said, nope, not going to do it until we add a liability shield, till we protect the corporations. Uh, months passed. Finally, things got so bad with the, the huge surge in late uh, 2020, early 2021, that uh, McConnell backed off. They did not do the full liability shield that he wanted. But that just proves how powerful corporations are and, frankly, how determined the politicians who serve those corporations are. Because even in the midst of a pandemic where hundreds of thousands of people are dying, millions of people are being infected, there were politicians who said, oh, can't do anything, can't help until we get the corporations protected. On the liability question, um, Cuomo, right? Liability protection for nursing homes. Do I have that right? Yep, absolutely. Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. He snuck liability <laughs> shield stuff in at a critical stage. And, and it was such an emergency moment that people initially went along with it. You know, even people didn't think it was a good idea because they were like, oh, we just got to get this. We got to get, you know, aid out. We got to help people. But in Cuomo's case, it was, if anything, even uglier. It wasn't just that he was protecting corporations. In many senses, he was protecting himself because he had made decisions about putting people who were infected into nursing homes that clearly caused disastrous circumstances in New York State. He went out of his way to try and prevent people from finding out what he and what corporate folks had done. Mm -hmm. It's maybe hard for people to remember now, given how far he's fallen. But at the time, I mean, your book reviews how much of a media darling he was and some of the statistics of like, like super majorities of New Yorkers thinking that he's doing a good job. What was it? How did he convince people, um, a super majorities, that he was doing a good job? Cuomo did what, frankly, smart politicians have learned to do in the modern age. They recognize that we've had sort of a collapse of a lot of our local media. Uh, we don't have as many reporters doing journalism. And so as a result, there's a void there. And as a political leader, if you step up and do daily press conferences, you know, really put yourself out front and do so in an aggressive way, you can basically own the story. And that's what Cuomo did. Now, to his credit, he accepted the reality of the pandemic in ways that Trump did not. So while Trump was kind of incoherent in the first months of the pandemic, you know, some days saying it was like World War II, we've got this incredible challenge ahead of us, other days saying, ah, it's nothing, we'll be back to work by Easter. He was whipsawing in his own mind. He was not taking it seriously. He has acknowledged to Bob Woodward he was actually lying to people about it. So you had this kind of incoherence on the part of Trump. And then here you had Cuomo, daily press conferences, very sophisticated, very well presented with video and audio and a team of people with him. And it became a reality in the United States that almost every day Cuomo's press conferences were being broadcast live on our cable channels. So millions of people, not just in New York, but across the country, were watching him. He wasn't afraid to pick fights with Trump on some things. And that was good. 
And so as a result, he, he became such a heroic figure in the early stages that there was even talk of replacing Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee for president. And it was only over time that you realized that while he was actually doing some good things, he was communicating well about it, that he was also playing politics with it. And this is a guy who had taken huge amounts of money from the healthcare industry, huge amounts of money from the nursing home industry. And he was, even as he said good things publicly, uh, behind the scenes, taking steps, taking actions that were damaging. And that would ultimately ended up uh, creating a circumstance where people died that didn't need to die. Jared Kushner was responsible for a lot of things in the Trump administration. You may not remember this, though. He was also put in charge of importing PPE into the United States. As you might expect, it was a total failure. John Nichols retells the story in a minute. Darts and Letters is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. That's a collection of left-wing Canadian podcasts. If you like us, you will like many podcasts on the Harbinger Network. Podcasts like Half Past Capitalism. They have a recent episode about non-extractive finance. Or Pullback, which has an episode out now about decarbonization. Find those and other podcasts at harbingermedianetwork.com. You can support Harbinger on Patreon, and you can support the individual shows. Like, you could chuck us a buck. That's at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Okay, back to my interview with John Nichols. One of the other figures in the book, this is one of those that it's like, oh yeah, I vaguely remember that. But Jared Kushner was responsible for importing PPE in a project called Project Airbridge, which you describe as a classic Trump scheme. Just read it here. It provides multinational corporations with no bid contracts that guaranteed them federally funded air transportation and fast tracks customs clearance. And then you quote Trump's these are massive planes, by the way, big planes, very big, powerful planes, and they're loaded to the gills with supplies. I totally forgot about this, but how did uh, Project Airbridge, uh, well, well, tell me a little bit more about it and how did it turn out? Yeah, I'll get to the end of the story first because it's the fun, you know, it crashed and burned, right? You know, it's, it's like it was a total disaster. But let's back up and ask why it was a disaster. Well, that's easy. You put Jared Kushner in charge. And the one thing that I try to recount in the book is, you know, Donald Trump wasn't a politician. He came to power because he figured out how to take control of the Republican Party, which wasn't hard, and then to prevail in a, an election cycle, not with the majority of votes, but with a minority of votes in the right places. And the weird part is he got in there without a lot of friends, without a lot of, uh, you know, longtime contacts and allies. And, and so he didn't trust a lot of the people who were around him. Uh, even, you know, people that when he staffed up, that's why he kept firing chiefs of staff. He keeps firing people. You know, it's constant. It's like, you know, he, at one point he left one of his chiefs of staff, Reince Priebus, on the runway at an airport. They didn't tell him he was fired. It's just when the motorcade pulled out, they didn't take Priebus, right? And so this is how Trump was governing. Now, in this chaotic approach, a lot of things went awry. But when you hit on COVID, of course, then, then it, you know, it gets serious, right? You got this is life and death issues. And Trump did what he had done throughout his administration. He turned Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, and put him in charge of something major. 
Kushner was already in charge of, you know, Israel-Palestine uh, peace negotiations and, you know, environmental things. And I mean, you just, the list was endless. It was like anything Trump didn't want to deal with and didn't trust anybody else to deal with, he gave to Kushner. So suddenly you got COVID and Kushner gets put in charge of essentially the supply chain. And, and the idea was we didn't have enough PPE. There were literally cases where nurses were using garbage bags to protect themselves because, you know, they just didn't have the equipment that they needed. And people were dying as a result of this. And Trump knew this. This was looking bad. And so he puts Kushner in charge. And instead of doing what would be so easily done in the United States, we have a Defense Production Act. We, we literally could have said, you know, look, factories that are making, you know, other stuff, you got to start making PPE. It's easy to do. Or if we're doing importation, that we literally set up a, a clear channel where it's coming into government warehouses. And, and, you know, we could do it, but we could do it. But Kushner didn't do that. What he did was he basically requisitions a lot of planes and says to U.S. corporations, if you find a company in China or Vietnam or someplace else that's making something, we'll let you have the plane. You can load it up with stuff. You just bring it into the United States. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to hassle you at the border. You're going to come in easy and stuff like that. And then if you promise us that you'll kind of try to get some of it to useful places, we'll let you have the rest of it, right? And that's what they did. They literally had these corporations bringing stuff in instead of a, a really systematic, smart way of distributing what they got, selling it off to the highest bidder and moving it to places that were the most convenient for them. So we ended up with a double hit. We spent a ton of money and we didn't get the supplies we needed at a critical stage. Now, Trump tried to suggest and Kushner tried to suggest that, you know, overall it worked and the private sector was doing good and stuff like this. But it was such a mess that this program that was started in the spring of 2020, by the summer of 2020, was under multiple congressional investigations and, you know, legal concerns, legal investigations, and they folded it. They just gave up on it, ultimately, because it was it was a disaster. Why this approach? Like, was it uh, ideological on Kushner's part? Was it profiteering? And is it conceivable that he might have chosen differently and that, that Trump actually might have gone that route of um, the Defense Production Act and did a kind of right populism or nativism to kind of get the country making all that PPE? Or was this a kind of fait accompli? Oh, that's a brilliant question because it gets us into two, you know, it puts us on two tracks, both of which are really important. Number one, what was going on with Kushner? What was going on with Trump? They were clueless. They didn't take advice from people who knew what to do. Kushner was literally taking advice from college roommates and stuff like this. They were, they were looking at this huge challenge and they were kind of responding to the last person they had talked to rather than, you know, a serious approach. So yeah, they were clueless. I, I, you know, I'd love to tell you that it was pure profiteering in their case. There were certainly, there was certainly profiteering, but I don't think that was what this was about. I think that in this case, I would argue that Kushner didn't know what to do. And so he and, and having Trump's imprimatur defaulted to the, the notion that the market will solve everything and we'll just, we'll throw a lot of money to corporations, get, let them do, deregulate them in a lot of ways. You know, let's be you know, virtual libertarians here and we'll see what we get out of this, right? And what they got was a disaster. So that's a, an attempt at an answer to your, the first part of your question. The second part of your question is where it gets really interesting because you're onto something that's huge. And I, I became very conscious of this as I wrote the book. Uh, look, 
we had an election in 2020. Most of what Trump did wrong during the course of 2020 was, uh, some of it was just personal hubris, but a, a huge part of it was he was afraid to get defeated for re-election. And so he decided that he was going to basically try and deny the crisis sufficiently that he could get reelected because he could go back to talking about the things he wanted to talk about. The economy is doing pretty good, stuff like that. Had he gone another route, had he, he said, you know, look, this is a huge crisis. It's a terrible circumstance for our country. People are really scared, but they're also really united. It was pretty broad-based fear of what was coming at us. If he had then said, you know, look, this is our number one job. This is what we've got to do. This is our Pearl Harbor. We've got to all be focused on this. One nation united together. Anybody who criticizes me is a horrible player trying, you know what I mean? He could neutralize those who disagreed with him, but he could also do, open up the, the treasury of the United States, you know, I mean, and just start, you know, print money to do things, right? And he could have taken care of a lot of Americans, right? Got resources out to them in a, in a very difficult situation, taking care of a lot of businesses, gotten a lot of health care to people. You know what I mean? Could have done all that and made himself, I think, very popular. Yeah. And frankly, if he had done that, uh, would he have been reelected? I think the chances are very, very good. I think you're absolutely right. If he had the sort of gumption and the wherewithal and the vision to say, you know what, we're going to go head on on this. Here's your Trump uh, vaccine. Here's your Trump mask. Here's your Trump checks. He probably would have won. I've also wondered myself, I mean, and, and reading your book, there's sort of two two things that I would say against that possibility. The one, the just, I mean, the rampant corporate profiteering throughout the book, right? So does his kind of alliance of corporate interests allow it? And second, and I mean, this really comes up in the chapter where you talk about Rahm Emanuel and you talk about sort of Clinton Democrats and things like that. Does the administrative state, to the extent that it still exists, can it even achieve it? So even if he wanted to, could they pull off kind of like a managed uh, economy approach and, and, and really kind of stem the tide of the crisis? I think that Trump uh, would have had to do something that I think some people anticipated he might have tried to do at the start of his presidency, but it turned out he never went that direction. And that it was to kind of jettison the sort of Paul Ryan economic conservative types and go with a certain sort of corporatism that created a lot of jobs. And that made some companies, you know, some companies did well, but wasn't necessarily particularly great for the investor class and wasn't particularly great for a lot of the, the uh, institution, the economic institutions and, and individuals that have tended to support both major parties in the country. There are elements of this that would have been a break with the political and economic elites of the country. And I don't think Trump was capable of it. As we talk about this, we're speculating, right? We're talking about how one might have uh, have dealt with this. But I don't think that, you know, it's likely that a Donald Trump would have, you know, suddenly just jettisoned all of the, the sort of systemic pressures. And I actually think, you know, because of, I'm, as people know, I'm, I'm pretty critical of the Democratic Party. I, I think that you might well have ended up in a situation where there were Democrats criticizing Trump for going too far if he had you know, tried to do some of these things. And you would have ended up with the, the usual sort of dumb partisanship. We cover education a lot on this show, especially higher education. So I wanted to ask you about another character in the book, Betsy DeVos, who people know as a fundamentalist sort of charter school advocate. 
how did she sort of take the, the, this opportunity, this crisis? Well, she gets a chapter, obviously. Education figures in the, in the book a lot. It's something that obviously became a very big deal because our schools were closed. And what Betsy DeVos did that was fascinating was instead of, of trying to make education work, right? And by the way, there's a lot of examples from around the world where they did do incredibly good jobs. And obviously it's a, maybe a smaller scale, but the prime minister of Iceland, uh, Katrine Jakobsdottir, I've interviewed her and she's spoken brilliantly about, you know, how they kept their schools open by uh, reducing the number of students at any time in the school. So instead of having all the students come in, they would have the teachers and a small group of students coming to meet with their teacher for an hour or so each day to get lessons, to have a little bit of instruction, to maintain that some sort of community, and then heading home, right? And using a lot of digital, a lot of virtual stuff. And that model, they, they had schools closed for a time, but they were able to, you know, make it function. Instead of doing, you know, like a really sensible approaches or trying different, different things, as teachers unions in the U.S. suggested, DeVos tried to use a hammer. She would go on Fox News and say, if the schools don't reopen right now, despite the fact that we don't have the protections that are needed, despite the fact that teachers are legitimately concerned, if they don't do what we tell them to do, maybe we should start looking to move the money away from public schools and over to private schools that are open. And so she went almost immediately to her great passion, which is privatization of public education, privatization of schools. And it was, uh, again, you know, it's funny in our conversation here, again and again, we come back to, well, they did exactly what we thought they would do. Well, she did exactly what you would think she would do. It's almost like uh, it's so predictable that it wasn't even surprising, except that you had real alternatives at the time. This is the bottom line. The teachers unions in the United States, especially the American Federation of Teachers, they were saying, look, we're ready to work with you. We're ready to find ways to A, do virtual education for as long as we can if we need to, but then to get back into those schools, but do it in the safest possible way for the students, for the teachers, and for the community. And they were not treated with respect. They weren't drawn into the discourse in the way that they should have. And then DeVos sided with some Republican governors uh, like Ron DeSantis in Florida, who really were just brutal in their approach, you know, just saying, we're reopening, who cares? I, I, this is just what we're going to do. And there are cases from around the country, I write about it, of teachers who died. Again, cases where people died that didn't need to die. And Betsy DeVos was exactly the wrong person at exactly the wrong time to be in charge of education in the U.S. Billionaires made out like gangbusters during the pandemic. But how exactly did the rich get so much richer? I asked John Nichols to explain the basic economics of the pandemic. That's after the break. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. 
the question of uh, profiteering, privatization, when you review the top line numbers of just the enormous transfer of wealth, I mean, billionaires made out like gangbusters, like $1 trillion of wealth gain from the 651 billionaires. It's hard to comprehend that kind of number. At a top line level, I mean, what exactly was it that made these billionaires' wealth rise so much? Well, let's uh, to update the numbers. People who are billionaires in the United States, A, their numbers increased from 614 to 745 during the first like 18 months of the pandemic. So you had an exponential increase in the number of billionaires and their wealth went up by 2.1 trillion, a 70% increase in their wealth. So this is just jaw-dropping. This is These are the best of times for billionaires. And how did they do so well? Well, because remember we talked before about, you know, had Trump really gone into using the Defense Production Act and forcing manufacturing and other sectors of the economy to bend to this reality, to say, you know, we're in a crisis moment. We're not going to have profiteering here. It's what Roosevelt did during World War II. He said, you know, look, we're going to still have the private sector doing stuff, but you're going to do it under our direction, had you organized the economy in that way, uh, which was highly successful during World War II, you wouldn't have had this kind of like massive transfer of wealth. But what we ended up with was a situation where uh, we freed up a lot of federal capital, right? We had a lot of money going out for loans to companies and, and grants, essentially, all sorts of tax breaks and other things. And what happened was that those who were already very, very wealthy were the first in line to take advantage of it. I write in my book about like anti- government groups, right? Groups that are highly critical of the U.S. government that were first in line. Oh yeah, I need my check to, you know, help me stay open, right? So we propped up, you know, the baseline operations of all kinds of businesses. And we did something incredibly beneficial to the investor class. The investor class could move its money, obviously, around to where where there would be profits, right? And you saw you know, a lot of the tech companies boom, you saw, obviously, Amazon boom. A lot of money flowed into them. A lot of money was made. And so we created a situation that was just, if you came into the pandemic with a lot of money, if you were an investor and you could move your money around and, and kind of make bets, oh, yeah, we're going to have to have a lot of stuff delivered. It was great for them. And there was no limit on the profit that they would make. The last sort of theme I wanted to ask you about was accountability. You talked about the extra hundreds of thousands of people dead because of terrible policy decisions. We've talked at length about people along the way, stalling things, profiting from them. And so you want to see accountability. I've never seen that in my lifetime in in US politics. I mean, the Iraq war and the torture memos and the financial crisis. I mean, it's such a foreign concept to me that it seems uh, almost too fanciful to comprehend. Um, So so what what would it look like uh, for you if it were real? Yeah, what a great question. And, um, you know, like I, I have a chapter that fine, and, and you've been so generous in your, your reading of the book and your, your referencing of it. You know that the final chapter is all about this and it's about impunity, right? That a lack of accountability leads to political and economic elites thinking they can do whatever they want, right? They're not going to be held to account. And in America, that's writ large across our history. I mean, we, we had a civil war and then we erected statues to the losers all over the country. And we let the people who were on the wrong side of a civil war, essentially, after a brief period of reconstruction, walk away and and run, run the territory that they had always run. And so as a country, 
we have a long, long history of letting people off the hook. And we let presidents off the hook. You know, Richard Nixon avoided impeachment in 1974 and flew off to California and began immediately kind of repositioning himself as an elder statesman. Ronald Reagan avoided accountability for the Iran-Contra scandal, which was, you know, astounding. Trump, you know, because of our, of our, uh, the way our system operates, avoided uh, conviction after being impeached twice. So we, presidents get off the hook. And if you think it's true with politicians, boy, it's writ large double in corporations. By and large, corporations, which have their hooks into both political parties, tend to have very, very little accountability. And so what would it look like? Well, the answer is that there are a few examples in our history of how it's been done. Probably the best example was Franklin Roosevelt during the Great Depression. When the Depression occurred, and this is one of the biggest things, I talk about this a lot because I think this is something that we need to understand. In the United States, and I think in Canada, and I think countries around the world, we tend to think of really bad things that happen as sort of natural disasters. Like, oh, economic meltdown, natural disaster. COVID, natural disaster, right? They're not. They are developments that may have been unavoidable, but at some fundamental level, they're disasters that are made dramatically worse by a failure of accountability. And when the Great Depression occurred, initially, Herbert Hoover was president of the United States, and he was basically, you know, relatively laissez-faire. He was sort of like, oh, man, something bad happened. We really hope it sorts out. Well, things just kept getting worse. And Hoover tried to intervene in some ways, but pretty miserably. And he was defeated for re-election, and Roosevelt came to the presidency. Around the same time that Roosevelt was coming to the presidency, senators were starting to realize, boy, this is, this is bad. We're going to be in trouble for this, you know, too. So they started to step up. And they started a commission in the United States Senate to investigate who was responsible for the Great Depression. Now, the Great Depression was global. So it wasn't, these weren't naive people. They didn't, they didn't think it was only like somebody pushed a button and the Depression happened. But they were basically saying, who made the pain as bad as it was? Who made things worse than it was? It was called the Pecora Commission. They actually hired a guy who had been a, a lawyer going after the mob in New York City. And because they looked at bankers and the financial sector as like the mob. And Pecora was fearless. He was a remarkable guy. Born in Italy, raised in, uh, I think, Hell's Kitchen in New York. A tough, tough guy. And he came into that committee and he called in bankers and CEOs, names that you would know, and put them in the chair and said, you know, why did you do this? And here's the evidence of what you did. And out of the Pecora Commission, there were prosecutions, convictions, withdrawals of licenses. It was profound. It had a huge impact and it captured the imagination of the United States. They didn't put every banker in jail. They didn't put every investor in jail. It wasn't, that wasn't the case. But it was clear that through that accountability moment, they identified the people who had made things worse. They took bankers off the pedestal, right? They took the financial class off that elite position and they said, no, these are bad people who did bad things for their own self-service. And you cannot let them return to their positions of power in the way that they operated. And the fascinating thing was that out of that accountability moment, you drove policy. That's where we started to regulate banks in the United States. That's where we started to regulate finance in the United States. Now, tragically, much of that was undone by Bill Clinton. You know, so I'm not saying we're in some perfect situation, but you know, in a brief and I think very positive period, 
and accountability moment led to A, prosecutions, but also to a change in policy. And that's what I argue for. I think in the, in the years since uh, Joe Biden became president of the United States and Democrats took charge of the Senate, they've squandered an accountability moment. They have not uh, done what they should have done. There should have been hearings. They should have had top prosecutors looking at these issues, not merely to punish. It's, this isn't just about punishment. This is about figuring out why things went as badly as they did so they would never go that badly again. I wanted to talk to you about Biden and, and where we are with the story today, because it strikes me that now we're in this period of sort of recalibrated or lower expectations after a series of legislative losses and, you know, just a kind of resignation almost. But even at the height of Biden's appeal, I guess, where there was a discourse that he was going to be a transformational FDR-like political figure. You know, I remember we did an entire episode a long ago around the, the theme of a return to normalcy. That was really always the pitch. It was never what you just said about, you know what, let's actually call out the people who wreaked this havoc upon us and um, banish them from the world of politics because uh, they should never, never return. But you know, it strikes me if he would have taken that tone, it would have it would have worked probably. Why do you think he didn't? And where do you see Biden more broadly, sort of in this story of the response to COVID nineteen? I think that Biden, who I've interviewed and covered for a very very long time, I think he's well intended, and I think that distinguishes him from Trump. I think that Trump was a, a, a damaged man, a, a mess of a human being, who couldn't even begin to worry about other people. Biden's better than that. And I think by and large, he's leaned in a better direction. And I'll give him that without a question. But I'll be very blunt with you. I don't think that his handling of this has, has been what I would like to see. Why wasn't there accountability from day one? Why didn't on January 20th, Joe Biden, who has control of the Congress too, why didn't they move immediately on something that would have been so easy? which is a, a deep accountability moment where they actually investigate and get to the heart of the matter. There could be revelations, you know, jaw-dropping revelations on a regular basis. I found them very easily in my book and a human side of this. And so they ask yourself, why wouldn't somebody as smart, and I think Biden's smart, and I think the people around him are smart, why wouldn't they do better? And I think that gets to the heart of the matter, to, you know, the, this uh, reality. Joe Biden's a man of government. He's a man of the, the modern Democratic Party. He's been a Democratic elected official for more than 50 years. He was 36 years in the U.S. Senate, eight years as vice president of the United States, three-time candidate for president of the United States. This is a guy who's, he's a lifer. He's a permanent man of government. He raises money for politics in the way that they all raise money for politics, with a deference to the corporate side, with a deference to the elites. I think that he too frequently has colored within the lines of the, the existing system rather than to go out of the, outside of those lines. And while some of his rhetoric was about building back better to do things really differently, the reality is that there has not been a sufficient break. That was John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He is author of Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, accountability for those who caused the crisis. That's out today from Verso Books.
And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. Research and show notes from Dave Mosscrop. Ian Souden is our marketing assistant. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Dakota Coop does our graphic designs, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca. Or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.